please sit comfortably. Good evening everyone, everyone in the room as well as on Zoom tonight. This is our first night of um, people being able to come back. It's really lovely to be able to to be in the same room as everyone again and, uh, and still continue to have people on Zoom. So as we did last time, we'll be doing, a, doing both. We'll have people in the dojo and um, particularly people um, interstate or outside of Sydney um, can still have the chance to be involved in the group. Um, just to say a few words about um, the lockdown and so on, uh, uh, in terms of how, it, how it's often related to or talked about, some of my um, Buddhist psychologist, psychologist colleagues um, have been um, giving feedback in the media uh, that when we have media coverage, you know, from a psychological perspective, perspective about you know how to how to handle the lockdown, you know, and the and the difficulties that may come into people's life. But some of my Buddhist colleagues, and I agree with them, um, are emphasising they believe that the media places too much emphasis on how people are vulnerable or mentally ill or not coping, etc., etc. And yes, that's that's certainly there. I've never been busier as a psychologist. But the other side of it is emphasising the importance of, of resilience and speaking to people's strengths, not just to their vulnerabilities. And people have shown, people in various walks of life have shown enormous amounts of resilience um, in dealing with this kind of social isolation and economic sort of disruption to our lives. So it's very important that the way we, we, we consider ourselves in all this is not just to follow ideas that we're all vulnerable and we're not coping. Yes, if that's occurring, we need to be accurate in acknowledging that. But there is the other side, you know, and that is about also acknowledging the strength and resilience that we have as human beings to deal with adversity. Anyway, to go into the the topic of what I wanted to speak about tonight and to give um, the Dharma talk um, a title, I'll call it um, The Identity Project. Um, as you may know from some of my previous talks during the lockdown, um, I've gone back into reading a lot of, um, as much as I can, uh, books about philosophy and neuroscience and what consciousness is, etc. And I'm particularly focused at the moment on reading about um, space and time in consciousness, you know, which are really the aspects of existence. Um, there's a lot of literature out there and there's a lot of literature out there about trying to understand what consciousness is. And there's one view of consciousness which is called um, panpsychism, um, which is a different view to a lot of the, what the neuroscientists have. The neuroscientists kind of focus on consciousness being just something material that comes when so many complex systems come into place um, and there's nothing particularly um, extraordinary about it. Um, whereas the Buddhist position, as the Dalai Lama has always said, 
is that Buddhism is a kind of a, a pan-psychism um, theory that consciousness pervades everywhere, just like space and time pervades everywhere. And the consciousness may be more awake in some beings than it is in others, but it's something that pervades the universe. And there's a lot of um, quite highly recognised um, philosophers in neuroscience who are sympathetic to that idea. No one can prove it, of course, um, but uh, it's an interesting topic. However, to come back to Sarsen, it's not as though I sit on my cushion thinking all these philosophical thoughts <laughs> when I'm doing Sarsen, but if you, but but nevertheless, the the theme is there in my mind because when you come back to sitting, in a sense, through the act of sitting and just being you're experiencing right right now you're experiencing in a non-conceptual way what it is to be conscious i know what it is to be conscious from a subjective point of view i'm experiencing it right now and i presume you do you do as well i know what space is before i put words to it i know what time is before i put words to it space, time, consciousness, they all come together as what we would call existence. When, the, when we're not conceptualising it, it's pretty straightforward what it is. Once we start to try and conceptualise it and explain it and so on, then we get into complexities of theories and words and agreeing and disagreeing. But the subjective experience is something quite simple. Really. And the actual meaning of the word Zen, like the literal translation of the character Zen, is to manifest simplicity. And that's what we do on the cushion from a non-conceptual point of view. We just manifest what it is to be a living being. And that's at the essence of it. Now, to go back to the theme of the identity project, um, one of the differences between living forms of life and, well, uh, forms which are living and forms which are non-living, like human beings compared to stones or whatever, is that a living creature has somehow got a sense of itself and it's self-organised and it's set up to survive. That's what it does. It wants to survive and it wants to reproduce itself. Um, if it's in danger, it can try and move its way out of danger. If it wants food, it can move itself towards its resources. A rock can't do that, right? So there is a sense of, there is a sense of, I'm separate from my environment in order to be a living creature. Otherwise, you'd have no sense of needing to feed yourself or look after yourself. So there is some kind of sense of self-organisation or self that actually develops. Um, but what the consensus is amongst um, different neuroscientists and how they approach it scientifically these days comes really close to the Dharma position, to the Buddhist position. There is, uh, there's no fixed self in there. There is self-organisation. There's, a, there's a, a need to survive. Right? There's consciousness. Right? But that's the view they're moving towards. There's no fixed self there. And what we know from doing experiments with perceptions 
is it's quite clear what neuroscientists tell us these days, that when we look at the world, we actually, we think that we're just seeing the world as it is, like it comes through our senses and it imprints itself on our consciousness somehow. But what they're demonstrating is that um, we actually project so much onto the world we're projecting our own view onto the world and self-creating it with the world. In art, they used to call it the um, beholder's share. You look at a, a work of art and you're actually projecting your own ideas and your own perceptions and memories on it. Right? It's not just it speaking to you. And this is all referred to as perceptions are really a form of controlled hallucination. Uh-huh. That that's what our experience of life is. It's a controlled hallucination. So it's kind of like a dream. Do you know, like we hear in 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 Chung Su and other various Zen teachers saying that life is like a dream. Well, yeah, it's kind of like a controlled hallucination. And they're using the same term now to describe what the experience of self is. That the experience of self is a controlled hallucination. Right. So it's a sense of ongoingness that we have in order to help us to survive, you know, and to know that I'm here and the world's out there, the food's out there, you know, the danger's out there, and what I've got to do to keep on surviving as a human being. Mm -hmm. Um, But the idea that there is some permanent self within us that's looking on and observing all this and stays the same is considered to be a controlled hallucination. Um, so it's becoming very consistent with a, a Dharma perspective that people have understood not through science but through meditative insight. Now, what happens when we're born, and then coming to the point of an identity project here, is that when we're born, we're born according to Dharma principles into the three characteristics of existence is pain, suffering is what we experience as a sentient being, everything is impermanent, and we'd have no solid sense of self, of who we are. We don't actually know what we are or who we are. And when we're young, we become very uncomfortable with this sense of not knowing who we are or being solid in this sort of transient, empty, groundless, universe and so we want to hold on to an identity we want want to create something which is solid and fixed in the world and that's where people develop different personality styles or they develop an identity that they then cling to as a way of getting a sense of solidarity in an insolid world in a dreamlike world and that's what we invest in we keep on investing in it and becomes our strategy to survive in some way. So we might have an identity of ourselves as being a helper, right? So all we do is help people all day long and that gives me my sense of who I am. Or if I feel confused about what my identity is, I might go into my intellect, right? And really rely on my intellect and think that I'm an intellectual person and I'm really smart and that's my identity. And everything is clinging around that identity. Or they could be negative things like um, I'm worthless, but that gives me a sense of identity too because I'm worthless, I'm something that I can name and I can develop 
an identity around that. There's various different ways which we can do it. Joko referred to it as a core belief, but she was emphasising the unworthiness aspect of it, that all human beings have a, a sense of unworthiness. Maybe, maybe that comes into it. But all human beings, as children at least, at some point have a sense of not who, knowing who they are or any solid identity. And so that's the identity project. That's what we create. The whole practice of, 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 of Zen and other forms of Dharma is to actually recognise the identity project and how it limits us. Right? So just living in your head as an intellectual and think that you're a smart person who's got a very good intellect and that's how you identify. You, you don't live a full life. If you identify being with a helper, oh, I just come from the heart and I'm helping, you don't, you don't experience a full life. You've closed yourself in. And so the whole point of meditation is to see where we've been entrapped by our own identity project, to see what we're clinging to and then have to defend. Cling to, defend, cling to, defend. That creates it even more. And it creates suffering in our life for ourselves and other people. So the whole point of Zen practice is to, to see what that identity is that closes us in and to deconstruct it. Like we, we melt it, it breaks down. Like the um, metaphor of the, the ice cube that just melts back into water. Mm -hmm. Of course you still want to survive. Mm -hmm. Of course you want to keep on living, you know, and enjoying your life. But you do it in a much more liberated and full way than when you're investing in the identity project. Mm -hmm. And when you're no longer investing in that identity, that narrow, limited identity all the time, then you, then you open up into existence. Uh, then, then you kind of open up into this mystery, which is space and time and consciousness, but you live the mystery. Not necessarily trying to work out the mystery, you're living the mystery. And you have more of a sense, not like a narrow self-identity, you have an ecological self, right? You, your ecological self is everything. Mm -hmm. Yet you're here in it as, a, as an organism within that whole environment, but you're connected to it. That's the shift that takes place through, through Dharma practice. Mm 